Hi, I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. We both love and are fascinated by stories. Stories about people. Stories about places. And stories about events. Our stories give shape and form to life. They give texture, color, and rhythm to the blank canvas that every new day presents to us. And they do that by informing us of our past as a directional marker for our future. Okay, Will, it's narrative time. Tell me a story. Well, Will, we're out here on a rainy fall day to do uh, today's episode, which is uh, a, a, another ambitious pro project for us. The last one we did together was 127 pages on by the Federal Reserve on the interest rate of everything. Rate of return of everything. That's exactly right. And today's episode is actually a 900-page treatise on why the United States is like the United States is. Yes, by uh, David Hackett Fisher, who is actually still living. He's 84. Is that right? Yep. So we're going to cover 900 pages in about an hour, and the name of the book is Albion Seed. That's right. Uh, I think you should go ahead and define Albion. It's a great... Yeah, Albion means Great Britain. Uh, it means England and it literally means the white land. Probably, we think that's probably because of the white cliffs of Dover. Right. That's right. So, and the reason uh, it's Albion seed is because the original American colonies came from there and they were all Englishmen. That's right, and, and the book is subtitled Albion Seed, Four British Folkways in America. So would you want to just talk about what a folkway is quickly? Go ahead, yeah, do that. So it's a, kind of a traditional behavior or way of life of a particular group or community of people. So a folkway could be the food you eat, you know, um, how your relationships develop, you know, your political beliefs, it's all these kind of like a community culture, if that makes sense. Social mores, taboos, et cetera. And we're talking about four different groups today that formed the foundation for the colonies that became America. The Puritans, right, yeah, the Puritans, the Cavaliers, the Quakers, and the Borders. That's right. So these are the four primary folkways, David Hackett Fisher, talks about in the book. There are a couple, there's several other smaller ones he actually goes over towards the later part of the book. Um, so, you know, he talks about Belagichi culture and, and quite a few other ones that also contributed. Um, but in terms of raw numbers, these uh, are the four primary uh, formative groups that um, kind of explain American culture and, and political life to a, to a certain extent. And whenever we look at historical theories, we always like them, the more predictive power they have. And um, I think this book really has some interesting predictive power and really some interesting implications for how we think about America and our place in it. I think that's exactly right. And I think these groups, uh, they explain a lot, but they give us a springboard to try to investigate more and more why we are like we are. 
And so if, if you would like, we'll start with the Puritans who arrived in New England in about 1620. That's right. Okay. So Puritans are kind of what you would normally think of your Nathaniel Hawthorne, Hawthorne novel. Um, so the Scarlet Letter, you know, Puritan New England, do you have some kind of um, attributes of the folkways you'd like to mention? Um, there's a few things like what you mentioned, and it is very much of what you picture of the folks that had the original Thanksgiving, right? Right. That, that does seem to describe them in my mind a lot. Um, you know, they were not fun-loving people. They were kind of dour. Um, uh, they believed in this city on a hill concept that was big with them. Um, they were intellectuals. They came from uh, the, the northeast of London. Uh, they were East Anglican. Um, uh, they were more than twice as likely to be literate than the average Englishman. That's right. So, and, and wait, so actually, uh, you made a small mistake there. So they didn't quite come from uh, London. They came from East Anglia, which is a little bit different. So it's a geographic area in kind of the east of England. Yeah. So if you visualize England, you know, you've got the Thames um, down south, kind of, and if you head straight north from London, uh, skip a few counties, you'll see East Anglia. So this is like Norfolk and Suffolk. Um, a couple other areas like that. And so that, that's kind of where the Puritans came from. And, and for each folkway, we'll also highlight where they came from in England because that, that um, you can actually trace surnames back and, and see from these counties who came from where and, and that contributes to a lot of the cultural um, thinking and, and know-how today. Yeah, I may have misspoken. I meant the Northeast. They Northeast of London. I didn't mean the north. Okay, yeah, northeast. Part of London. I mean northeast of there. That would have been closer to the truth. Mm -hmm. All right, a few facts about Puritans. Um, modern Newark, New Jersey, was named after the New Ark of the Covenant. That's what it means. That's yeah, pretty cool. A lot of religious symbolism. Um, you know, really, these people believed in uh, kind of after the English. Civil War, there's a lot of people who, yeah, you know, England was very fractured and um, these people were super hyper-religious, you know, down on drinking, a lot of, you know, things like that, which is, is quite interesting. Um, d just as a side note, uh, do you remember what the Ark of the Covenant was? I guess it's not an is anymore. Um, Old Testament artifact. Yes. About the extent of my knowledge. Yeah, the children of Israel, when they were wandering around the desert for 40 years, had this, and I don't mean to be sacrilegious, they had this box. And the Levites would carry it about a half a mile in front of the soldiers. And it had four things in it. It had um, uh, the two tablets for the New Testament, it had manna in it, and it had Aaron's rod in it. And when then they would stop and encamp, they put it in the center and everybody sort of circle around it in very uh, pre-designated spots. Every little you know, tribe had the place where they were supposed to camp to protect it. So that was the Ark of the Covenant. All right, so the Puritans get here and they try to import African slaves, but they all died of the cold. 
That's right. Uh, so didn't, that, and that's part of the reason why there was not slavery north of the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah, it, 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 you, it wasn't because they were pure, apparently. It's yes. because it was unsuccessful. And, that's correct. Uh, so we should draw that designation, I think. Um, everyone was compelled by law to live in families. And if you didn't have a family, you shit, you had to go, single people had to go find one. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. 98% of Puritan men married, while 73% of Englishmen did. So there was this uh, tremendous uh, importance associated with a family. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of social conservatism. Social conservatism, I'd say. Yes. But this was interesting. They felt that way, but, but families would switch their children, trade their children, because they felt like if you went to somebody else's house and lived, you would behave better than you would in the house where you were born. Hilarious. <laughs> I don't know all the social implications of that, but it says something. Yeah. Um, in 1692, 25% of women older than 45 years of age were accused of witchcraft. It's pretty wild. What does that say to you? Uh, so, you know, witchcraft was an important part. I mean, so the Scarlet Letter and, uh, and if you read, you know, about the, the witch trials, uh, this is, this is all kind of drummed up together in in Puritan culture. You know, it's quite interesting. Like I said earlier, you know, quite social conservative, um, I would say. This is, and I think this is almost emblematic of, um, you know, we can, we can go through incidents that kind of uh, epitomize each group. Puritans, you kind of think of them as almost establishment Democrats. Like Joe Biden is probably a, a uh, Pretty, you know, typical Puritan, I would say, and hers uh, and their legacy later. But I, I think um, you, you could definitely think about them as, as slightly more social conservative, socially conservative than everyone else. So if you look at uh, at uh, so rich Democrats today, like if you look at the data, um, rich Democrats tend to be super socially conservative. Um, perhaps not in their, uh, their, their spoken preferences. And, and I don't mean socially conservative in, in like uh, anti-gay marriage or things like that. I mean socially conservative in terms of uh, family formation, having children after, um, you know, after you're already married, things like that. That's actually a very important core value. And that's actually played out in the data. Most children, um, so, so most Families in that group have children after. I know it's a roundabout way of talking about it. Yeah, that's the one of the things we're going to find out is there's two of these groups that had very little, um, pre, very low premarital pregnancy rates, and there's two of the groups that had much higher premarital pregnancy rates. That's right. That's interesting. An interesting comment when you look at the Republicans and Democrats today and what they say, they're kind of they espouse or believe in. That's right. Well, I, I guess my, my point is, is that there's there's different levels to, you know, like when you say someone's socially conservative or socially liberal, it really 
there's quite a few levels to that and, and different policies one could think about. And, um, but I, in just forms of, in terms of the family and family formation and how that looks like, um, quite socially conservative, I'd say. And that's an important value. Yeah, and I think that's probably going to surface as we as we review each of, of these groups and then get to some conclusions. Um, so Puritan life was actually pretty terrible. They lived in a cold place. They did all the work themselves. Uh, there were a lot of rules and regulations, but uh, we just talked about the teen pregnancy rates being low and the murder rate uh, was half of that of other American colonies or colonists. Pretty interesting. Yeah, and I guess that goes back to rules and regulations. They punished things really. Um, they were they were big on punishment. They believed in it. Again, yeah, again, all um, probably had to read that in high school, and that is uh, quite a great description of um, Puritan life. And and I think we should highlight again. So uh, predominantly, if you think of New England, that's where Puritans primarily lived. Right, Massachusetts. Right, Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, they had remarkably low income inequality, which is a big, big thing today. That's right, quite interesting. Uh, women had more equality than most other uh, places. That's another thing that's a little different and, and very positive about Puritans. So um, if you look at, uh, I'm just looking this up to confirm this. So do you, want, do you know where uh, Susan B. Anthony was from? Well, I bet it's going to be Massachusetts. Yeah, Adams, Massachusetts. <laughs> Hadn't thought about that, but that makes sense, doesn't it? Yep. Uh, domestic abuse was punished brutally. That's right. Very, uh, yeah, very law and order. Kind of like I said, you know, social conservatives, they're quite socially conservative in the sense of, uh, in certain ways, which you, yeah, in, in certain policies like that. It, it, I guess, guess in kind of family formation law kind of things like very low tolerance for things uh, like crime and things of that nature. Yeah. And Social that, disruption. Uh, yes. It, you know, it was law and order rules and regulations. That's what they That's were right. about. Very structured life. And they had a top notch educational system. So they really believed in that. They That's really right. The, the Ivy League. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. I hadn't thought of that. That's that's right. That's exactly what. Yep. In, in fact, in fact, you mentioned New Jersey earlier, and Rutgers was actually a um, an Ivy League institution when it was formed, and I think it was it was uh, originally called Queens College, hmm. chartered in 1766. Okay. Now we're going to move to the Cavaliers, and it's 20 years later, about 1640. And the Cavaliers come to America. What's right? You want to tell us anything about the Cavaliers? So Cavaliers, um, kind of a foil to the Puritans, I would say. So they're from the south of England, um, city of London. So if you look at, at Richmond, um, have you been to Richmond? Yes. So you've been to Richmond, you, you know it's on the James. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Cavaliers envisioned uh, Richmond to be you know, be like London, to be like a new London, just so just, just like London sits on the Thames, um, you know, Richmond sits on the James. And uh, so Cavalier values are interesting and I, I think perhaps the most foreign to the modern um, 
listener. So, you know, work was not valued at all. So the more you worked, the uh, lower status you were. Um, they were super interested in hierarchy. So hierarchy was a, a very important value to them. Um, they wore, uh, you know, very explicit clothing. So if you think of the Virginia Cavaliers, like UVA, and you know the image of wearing orange and things like that, and all these bright colors and showing off, you know, almost like a you think of like a pimp or something, right? You know, like you've got the cane and stuff, and uh, all this value around uh, not working and, and sticking around. This is a if you if you start really to, to get into it, this is what you think of as um, establishment Republicans are traditionally fairly uh, fairly cavalier. Like this is kind of the the, the thinking strain that comes from. Um, some other important folk ways uh, they talked funny, um, and we can talk a little bit about the accents later. Um, they they really most of these people were were young men who really wanted to be accepted into London social life, but just couldn't quite cut it for whatever reason. Um, and they primarily settled in Tidewater, Virginia, uh, North Carolina, and eventually would spread down south. But in, in the beginning, they were in Tidewater, Virginia, and, and North Carolina. So after the English Civil War, uh, there were some nobility that weren't doing that great. And yep. William Berkeley was one of the Virginia governors uh, appealed to the British nobility to immigrate. And that's so they came to Virginia. That's right. Um, and 98% of Virginia immigrants from England were royalists. That's right. That's important so that, to remember. Yeah, so that just sort of paints that whole picture of who they are is they're, they're very English and loyalties. Yeah, what you would traditionally imagine, and I think an English person to be, you know, very pro- um, royal royalty, very, um, yeah, the pro hierarchy, things like that. Yeah, especially since they were part of the aristocracy, they were interested in preserving that. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Um, they brought indentured servants to America to do their work. And uh, so white people in Virginia died from malaria, typhoid, dysentery, all those things. And how did they replace the indentured servants? So this is actually, um, yeah, so they ended up replacing these indentured servants, and this is the beginning of the slave trade. Um, so actually, so African-Americans, um, you may have heard that African-Americans, they get this condition called sickle cell anemia. Uh, and it, it's, a, it, it's one of these, it, it's a disease where if you have like a certain number of copies of the gene, you get sickle cell anemia, but if you don't, you have a certain protection against malaria. It's not like 100%, but it's much, you know, it's much higher than settlers from England. Um, so they started importing African-American slaves, Africans as slaves. And um, that's actually so where the whole plantation system comes came from. Yeah, if we contrasted this with what happened I mean, compare, compare, contrast with what happened and with the Puritans, uh, when they brought, when the Puritans brought slaves in, they died of the cold. So right. that system never thrived. And, and then, so the, when the Cavaliers brought indentured servants that were white, they died of all the things they couldn't tolerate, yeah. disease essentially. And so uh, unfortunately they brought in slaves to do the work and that That's persisted right. for a while. Right. And I don't even think, uh, it probably wasn't the cold, it was probably like, you know, 
diseases during the winter is what did it. But right, and it wasn't just like they froze to death. It's like they no. they got diseases associated with probably being clustered together when it's cold. We yes. still have those things today, but that's there's, yeah, exactly. There's no genetic hardiness factor we're talking about here, but yes, right. it, it anyway. So uh, facts about Cavaliers, uh, they, and, and you mentioned this. Well, you, you mentioned the plantations, but you didn't uh, mention that they didn't really have towns. What they had were plantations. That's right. So it's like feudal England all over again, essentially. That's kind of what's idealized. And that's what they ended up recreating. And instead of uh, an emphasis on education, Virginia Governor Berkeley, the guy from England, uh, denounced education because it resulted in disobedience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> again, again, uh, really uh, interested in hierarchy and maintaining hierarchy. And so obedience was an important cultural value, which is something that it's, I think is, again, quite foreign to our uh, modern listener because it's just not something I think really anybody values at this point. Uh, and one of the points it made was that in 1747, there was a minister uh, preaching against pride and one of the important plantation owners had his church boarded up because he didn't want there to be uh, sermons against pride. They saw that as a positive for ours as a virtue. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, very, yeah, it's very, I'm sorry. It's, uh, it's super interesting just to think of, uh, yeah, cavalier men, right? Like, uh, wild you know you're walking around you got this big fluffy hat these like you know trying to walk through the mud with these big so they wear like high-heeled shoes and things like that it's just very very funny trying to duel everyone trying to duel and that sort of brings us to the next you can always tell a lot about culture from their sports and games right that's right so for the the plantation owners the, the nobility they hunted right they killed animals yep. for sport um their indentured servants played a game where they uh, drew and quartered live geese. Oh, God. <laughs> it's like horrible. It's like it's pretty horrible. Uh, just gruesome stuff, um, but not the most gruesome. The children were encouraged to kill and torture songbirds. Oh, God. Yeah, songbirds and uh, snakes and they'd maim frogs. They just tortured animals. Children did. That's how they were trained to, to become, to grow up is to be just like this, to do these things. Um, and also to pull the wings off butterflies. That was, it's also disturbing, but. That, so yeah, I, again, this is a, I really, I really want to hit this point again and emphasize this for the, the modern listener. You know, hierarchy was just like incredibly important. And for most of history, you know, most cultures have really valued hierarchy and enforcing your will on, you know, whoever's down the ladder, right? Uh, and you can see this reflected in how they treat animals, which is just a, it's just, a, it's a value that I don't think is transferred into uh, the modern world, which is interesting. I, I think it's uh, something to keep in mind. You know, that that's, that's fascinating concept that you just brought up is like, they, they um, developed people through the torture of animals. So now what do we do today? By and large, we have pets that are at least as important as our children, right? Yeah, it would be, it would be extremely culturally taboo to do any of those things you just mentioned. In fact, we would probably call somebody 
and I have your children. You know, we, we would call it, you know, we would call uh, protective services. Right. You know, it, yeah. almost immediately when we saw him and a kid doing that today. Yeah, I think it's, that's a extreme norm violation. Extreme, yeah. like I, I struggle to find a more extreme norm violation just sitting here thinking today. And, and, and it says, I think, a lot about us today, the way we do value animals. Just yeah, well, I think even more, I think it even goes beyond that. I think uh, we are generally resistant to, uh, and I think this is a good trend. This is a really good trend. We uh, are skeptical and want to minimize hierarchy. And you see this in inequality. You know, people want to minimize inequality, want to minimize hierarchy between people. Whereas, uh, you know, this was like a value. I think it's almost the opposite. It's like they really valued having, you know, obedience and, and things like that. And um, I don't know. Not a good place to live if you were a, uh, a lower class person. And would probably even be weird if you're in this insane status competition during, uh, as a cavalier. And it, it, it just seems to me to make common sense that if you value low animals like that, that you'll value human beings even more. I mean, we, we would hope. And so it just seems like a wonderful evolution of humanity to me. But Yeah, definitely more positive. I don't want to live in that world. It would kind of freak me out, man. Yeah, that, that, that just thinking about that is, I find disturbing. Okay, um, you want to talk about where condescension came from? Condescension. Yeah, condescension is a cavalier value. They believed it was being sort of polite to your underlings. Uh, so they, they saw us being polite, but you know how it actually worked out. <laughs> if you're polite. So the modern word condescending, actually, its meaning has evolved. It's like, yeah, so you're being nice to me, but you clearly like are looking down at me. You know, you look. So this is all tied up with hierarchy again. Yeah, I mean, it's another one of those weird concepts. Like, if you're doing things like pulling wings off butterflies, torturing frogs, pulling geese apart and hunting, then I don't think condensation would, in practical terms, be very polite. Right. Well, then you're also, you know, you're enslaving all these Africans. Um, yeah. you're, you know, you're like treating the people even, you know, there wasn't really like this middle class or anything, but you're treating people below you for, you know, you know, you're being nice, but being horrible at the same time. So, and, and that's, I, I think that's super interesting that, you know, that was very valued so you would be very uh, kind to people. And that's where, you know, a lot of like selling like manners and things like that come, come across. And people from other parts are, are oftentimes skeptical of that because of kind of, you know, condescension was quite the respected value, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we should mention now duels. This is where duels come into American history, right? Yep. So they, they love dueling. That's how you would resolve yeah. things. And it's sort of adults doing violent things again with a, from a perceived slight, somebody has to die. That's right. That's that. that that's that. So uh, if you uh, contrasted Virginia and Massachusetts, uh, Virginia had a, a very high homicide rate. You can see with dueling of those things, it would. Um, there was an obsession with gambling, which would never have been tolerated by the Puritans. Um, and they, another thing they mentioned is like, and we probably didn't mention when we talked about the Puritans, is the Puritans had really plain food. Like they would just take vegetables and meat and just boil them 
in water, cook them in water until they were just limp and they use no spices. And so you can imagine it wasn't like you would eat it if you were starved, but it wouldn't be very appealing. And the Cavaliers love these big feasts. That was a big thing with them. So sort of a, that, that, was, that was different between the two groups. Um, and then the note in the book about uh, Cavaliers were carefully cultivated jerks to make them good nobles. That was the whole idea, right? That's right. That's right. Pretty interesting. So they, they wanted to copy, it was like this mimetic copying of um, kind of older nobility that's still in England. Yeah. So we get to 1670 and the Quakers come to America. That's right. That's we'll right. About Quakers. My personal favorite group here, uh, well, maybe, maybe tied with horrors in terms of how interesting they are. Yeah, so Quakers, uh, you know, founded by George Fox. It's a kind of religious sect founded by George Fox. And let me see, I'm looking this up right now. Uh, George Fox. So George Fox was a pretty nutty guy. I don't know if George Fox University. Man, there we go. Uh, perfect. Let's see. He was born in 1624. And he was a uh, he was the son of a weaver, and he was uh, they think he was probably bipolar um, or schizophrenic. I'm not sure, but he would have these episodes, and he was sitting there, and he's like, "Man, you know, like uh, he's kind of the he's ultra Protestant, is what I would say." See, Martin Luther was like, "Guys, you know, I don't know, Catholics, you know, they're taking money to get people in heaven. I don't see this in the Bible. This is kind of screwed up," um, which I'm a big fan of. I think. This is like incredibly corrupt, and the idea that you have this like institution where there's like this man that's closer to God than anyone else, the Pope, and he's like chosen, just like doesn't seem to like match anything. I, I think this is like very bizarre to me. Like the whole Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, is just it's a very bizarre concept to me in in, in light of like the actual gospel and everything that safe for the other day. No offense to anyone's Catholic. Uh, do what you want. Um, but uh, I, I, anyway, George Fox, ultra, ultra Protestant, and he believed that um, that uh, everyone needed to talk directly to God himself. So he goes up on Finlay Hill and he has this vision that uh, he's like, wow, you know, God is in everyone. There's like this inner light, like God's in each person. They just need to be, you know, to sit quietly. So in church, like a church service, um, you know, a bunch of pews facing each other. Um, so you are actually raised a Quaker, um, a Quaker church services, everyone's sitting silently for an hour and if they're led to speak by God, they speak and if not, they don't, and there's no minister. So it's anti hierarchy it's complete anti-hierarchy. So you can contrast these to, um, the Cavaliers and just, there's, there's no hierarchy here. So, you know, they have a lot of incredibly modern values, I'd say. So equality for women, um, things like that. And uh, pretty much if you look at kind of modern social values, like they are exist today, um, they, they would be Quaker values. Uh, yeah, that's, that sort of encapsulates a lot of it. I would mention that they believed in this inner light, that they felt, thought there was goodness in everyone. And right. still like that. Well, they thought literally God is in everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And uh, this was an interesting comment that I drew directly from the book. Um, uh, Puritans were dystopian caricatures of virtue, Cavaliers were dystopian caricatures of vice, 
and we would think of Quakers as today as being pretty ordinary, like mo modern. As yeah, I, I think this is actually, yeah, the, the, the interesting thing about uh, Quaker beliefs in both ways is that just how normal they would seem to all of us. It's like, well, they get together and they, they do their mindfulness class, you know, once a week and they, they uh, you know, they're kind of, yeah, they believe God's in everyone and like each person has to get to it themselves and, uh, you know, they treat everyone with respect, you know, they're anti-hierarchy, which was very bizarre in the 1600s. I think it's not bizarre today, but it was incredibly bizarre then. Um, and I think they've actually kind of won the modern, you know, paddle for uh, American minds. It's just an average, right? Like most people would think of the world this way. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, there was an insistence on tolerance and freedom, pacifism, equality of the sexes, racial harmony. They thought everyone was equal. I mean, those are all seem to be modern values. And you've made, you've really hit on it when you said, they may have won the, the battle of the philosophies between these four groups. Yeah, I, I think they've won so much you can't even consider that there was anything different ever. I mean, like I, I, I really do think this is the case. Um, Quakers as a actual group, because they didn't have, you know, in, in contrast, like Roman Catholicism, they don't have, they didn't have um, major, you know, religious leaders and things and exclusionary practices. So you don't, um, everything just gets integrated. So it's kind of like the ocean, you're swimming in the ocean, you're a fish, you can't really tell the ocean's there, the water, it's kind of a fact of life. That's kind of uh, what Quaker values I think have done um, to the world, even though there aren't, nominally there aren't that many Quakers. Uh, so interestingly, another fun fact, so most abolitionists were Quakers and uh, Abraham Lincoln was half Quaker and half Puritan. Um, straight up, which is quite interesting to me. Um, if you go, so if you're in Chapel Hill and you take, what's the highway that runs from uh, Chapel Hill to Greensboro? 54, is that 54, Highway 54? No, it's not 54, it's a country road. It's, uh, is it 62? Oh, okay, yeah. Is it 62? Yeah. I can't remember. Well, 62 runs up there. You're talking about the one that runs, well, Go ahead and tell what you're going to tell. We'll work out the details later. Okay, so we can get you the highway. It's, it's where, so if you head um, west out of Chapel Hill and you go past, uh, is it Falls Lake, Jordan Lake, and you, you're heading to, heading to Greensboro, you, you can see all these Quaker meetings and they go 10 years back every like, so every like 20 miles, you get like 10 years back. And you know, it's, it's pretty funny. So, these are really old meetings and, and they keep, they keep going. It's one of my favorite drives in North Carolina. Um, but the interesting thing is, uh, so they were big abolitionists and they moved down from Pennsylvania. That's where most Quakers immigrated to was Pennsylvania, but then they spread out to North Carolina, Indiana, across, um, across the United States. Uh, the underground railroad was run through a lot of Quaker meetings and Quaker houses. So they would, you know, Obviously, they believe everyone interlights in everyone, so everybody um, has God inside them. So they were big into you know ending slave trade, like anti. You had to think of like so Puritans are anti-Cavaliers, but um, Quakers are even farther away from Cavaliers in the sense that you know, do not believe in hierarchy at all, and found this incredibly offensive. So you know uh, they helped run the underground railroad and support you know Harriet Tubman, et cetera to get people, move people out of uh, slave owning south. 
So the Quakers had this, the picture we're beginning to paint is the Quakers philosophically had this huge impact on the modern world because now we wouldn't even consider them to be uh, a group from the 16, 1700s as much as modern. That's what we would think of them. So they obviously had a huge impact. Now I've got a question for you. So if that's true, why did they, and they did, why did they not flourish religiously? What do you mean? Well, you know, why did they not run everything? Uh, they, they kind of, their religion has gotten smaller and like, yes. the, yeah, in Pennsylvania, you know, in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, their impact is less, not greater. Uh, so why do you think that's true? Right. So why, why isn't everyone Quaker? I think because everyone is Quaker in the sense that, uh, so this is what they really believe. So if you look at modern, like mindfulness practice, that's literally like just like a Quaker worship service. Like, um, so you, you know, you get together with people and you're going to sit there and, and meditate. Um, I, I think because they are so, it's so free form to a certain extent. So, um, I, again, there's not like some ritual and, and they're not, they weren't evangelizing directly. Right. So you're not saying like, come, like, it's not a value to say, come and like join my, my meeting. Like it's literally a meeting of people to get together and, and do this quietly. And, you know, uh, so it, the explicit religion, um, declined because they're not evangelical. Does that make sense? I think that's they, exactly, that's a huge part of it is they weren't evangelical. And the other thing is they would say, you need to go and find the truth yourself. And so we'll get together and we'll give you a chance to think about it and ask us questions. We'll ask you questions about what you think. If you bring it up, if you don't right. bring it up, we'll just sit here and look at each other or look at the floor. <laughs> but you need to discover that yourself. So it wasn't formalized so much. That's I mean, right. It, it, when people ask me, what's a Quaker? I said, well, you got a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> How exactly. do you survive that which doesn't have boundaries and rules, right? Yes. So it's like this metal level value that, it's become all encompassing, but the, the actual explicit practice is not, um, you know, it, it wasn't a value to keep that around. So people really didn't, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it, it, yeah. So that, that's, that's really interesting. Here's the next thing that I want to bring up because it sort of encompasses or the, the whole thing is like <clears throat> William Penn. That's right. Like what William, do you, Penn, do you want to talk about William Penn first? Do you want me to talk about William Go Penn? Ahead. Okay, William Penn, you can think of him this way. He was a 17th century Superman. Uh, he was a distinguished military officer. Um, he was in some legendary duels and he was really good at it. So what he would do is disarm his opponent and then give him a lecture about why it was terrible to kill people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, so he was, uh, he was uh, charged with blasphemy and he defended himself and uh, successfully. Um, and apparently he just was a really bright guy who was also, uh, he befriended King Charles II who gave him a large chunk of the Eastern US which became Pennsylvania. That's right. And he didn't want to call it Pennsylvania. He wanted to call it Sylvania. But all his supporters said, no, we got to call it Pennsylvania. So they did. And it was intended to be kind of like, he called it a colony of heaven for the children of light. Um, so a place to retreat from the world and build kind of this better and more utopian vision. Yeah, and here, here, here's, uh, here, I, I wrote this down almost verbatim because I thought it was so, so telling. 
Um, it, the book said that William Penn might literally be the most successful person in history. From a minor noble and a religious sect that everyone despised to the principles of Pennsylvania, to the principles of the U.S., to the principles of the world. Yes, so literally, yeah. So I, I think people understand, so being a Quaker was super looked down upon. Um, so George Fox had some really weird habits, like um, to try to put his message out by you know, gods and everyone. You know, he would like, he rode in the Canterbury on an ass, like Jesus, you know, at the point being like, you know, gods and everybody, and like really riled people up and people that, you know, the establishment did not like him whatsoever. Um, and so, you know, Quakers are like, man, these weird people, they're letting women in and they're talking, they're talking to women like they're equals and stuff, like all this weird stuff, you know, I don't know about that, right? You know, it's just, this is not cool. Um, so <laughs> they, uh, yeah, so he, he went from minor nobility to essentially, you know, propagating the ideas of modernity, you know, everywhere. Kind of these core modern values, which is really pretty wild. What seems to keep coming to mind over and over again, if you set a Quaker into, into today, other than the fact the language would be a barrier, probably cell phones, computers, they yeah. kind of right in. Yeah, they, yeah, exactly. Other than like the dress and things like that, they would be like, wow, this is, this is like thinking wise, like why is everyone thinking like this is kind of bizarre, you know? Yeah, like, everybody's like me. Well, how did that happen? That's right. Um, Quakers, some facts about Quakers. Uh, Quakers allowed women to preach. And even in my lifetime, that was considered to be very forward thinking. Yeah, exactly. Pretty, pretty wild. So yeah, it, emphasis on equality. When I think about Quakers, I think of kind of the, uh, the, 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 how do I put this, the, the further left end of the, uh, the Democratic Party. So, you know, I think more like a Bernie Sanders kind of figure, like, um, whereas, you know, Puritans are definitely more establishment. I think Massachusetts, like Kennedy, Democrat kind of thing. Um, you know, I think more of the left end of the, Democratic Party is this kind of emblematic of kind of Quaker values and um, kind of the end point of where that has gotten so far. Yeah. Um, Quakers had very mod modern ideas about parenting as well. They believed that they sheltered and spoiled their children while they were raising them instead of beating the devil out of them, which the other three groups were trying to do. Yeah, exactly. Very different. Very different. Very different. William Penn wrote 30 books defending liberty of conscience, which became the basis of conscientious objection. Yep, so uh, they're anti, they're pacifists, anti-war, and uh, just super anti, uh, yeah, you know, so talking about his conscience and why we shouldn't go to war and things like that. Yeah, interesting. And one of the first groups to uh, abolish the death penalty as well. That's right. Although, you know, it may have been worse, so they've lost the death penalty and they just put people in solitary confinement and thought, well, they'll, uh, they'll talk to God and figure it out. So, you know, it's like, they yeah, drove that, a lot of people insane. And that, that was one of those good ideas that didn't work out very well. Like, that might work for you or me, but if you've got some sort of emotional problems, like, not well at all. No, not good. <laughs> not good. Okay. Uh, so that's the Quakers. When that br brings us to the borders, and the borders would have been about 1700. That's right. So borders um, are from the border region between 
England and Scotland in this area. Do you know what Hadrian's Wall is? I do not know what Hadrian's Wall is. So you can still go and visit. There's like remnants of this wall that the Romans put up between uh, England and Scotland to keep borders out. <laughs> they come down and like super rabble rousing fighting group uh, between England and uh, Scotland. So like Northern England, like these borderlands. And so that's where we get the, the word border from. So if you think of like rough, rough and tunnel, tunnel, rough and tumble rabble rousers, um, you know, primarily settled in like Appalachia, that region. And if you think of more like the Donald Trump wing of the Republican Party, Andrew Jackson was also a borderer. Um, that's, you, you can kind of visualize uh, kind of border, borderer values. So much less hierarchical than um, cavalier values. But these are like frontiers people. These are pretty, you know, rough and tumble farmers and subsistence farmers um, that lived in kind of Appalachia. Now, and what I gathered from reading was that um, what would happen is uh, the Scots would do something to irritate the English, and the English would then invade the border, uh, burn every, burn all the buildings down, kill everyone—the soldiers, and the people, and women, children, yep. terrible things—and then. That was settled bit. The Scots would all get together and they'd be, you know, we're not putting up with this. And then so they would rush down south into England and do the same thing, burn everything down, kill everybody, and just That's right. And so that happened over and over. Yep. And what I, from what I could tell, it seemed to cause the borders to move west between Ireland and uh, and England. That's right. And then, and the same thing, I mean, all this chaos and havoc and, and killing everybody and burning everything yeah. they built. So finally they get to Ulster, Ulster in Ireland. And from there- and Ulster, that's Northern Ireland. Right, that's Northern Ireland. And they went from, of course, nobody wants them, right? Because they're right. so wild, they're just wild. Yeah, you know, so, super high murder rates and things like that. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit about more, more about that in a minute, but so from there, because they're unwanted, like they're unwanted everywhere. You see this pattern developing. And they go from Ulster, a quarter of a million of them came to America, which is much, those numbers were 10 times, well, five to 10 times more than any other group that we've talked about so far. Yeah, pretty, super interesting. So you mentioned Ulster. So there was a great tweet, uh, probably three days ago before recording this, I saw, um, and it was Ulster Scots for Trump. I thought this is, this is like absolutely perfect, right? Like, so, you know, it's like this, this makes so much, it makes so much sense, right? It, because, you know, they kind of came from borderland between England and Scotland, Ulster, Northern Ireland, um, and then finally to kind of the Appalachian region, the frontier. So they, you know, they would get pushed out by the cavaliers. We don't want you. You know, you're like low class, whatever. You get out of here. This is our noble New England here. Um, so go, go west. So they went west and that's where they settled. Uh, and the way that, that my reading of it is they initially came to Massachusetts and you know, they were looking for people to work, right? Because yeah. slaves didn't work out. So, yeah. oh, good, great, they're here. Well, then they had them there and went, uh, no. And so they push them south <laughs> into Virginia and the Cavaliers say, oh, good, more, more labor. And then they have them there for a while. They go, mm -hmm. uh, no. So they push them <laughs> into Pennsylvania and the Quakers go, well, we accept everyone. Uh, no, <laughs> pushed them south into the Appalachians where yep. they settled, where they could be, to, which was probably a good thing in that they got to have their own area. 
right? They that's right. That's right. Nobody was going to yep. put a boot on their neck anyway. And exactly. nobody should live like that. So you should find, try to find a place where you can have your community, right? That's right. And if you look at, uh, so even, so David Hackett Fisher wrote another book on the Civil War, which we should talk about. But if you look at like, so Appalachian, Appalachian region, okay, West Virginia literally seceded from Virginia to stay in America. If you look at, uh, you know, Western North Carolina, like everyone was like anti this whole project. Like, you know, we're not seceding. This is stupid. Like you stupid Cavaliers, what are you doing? And, and um, so, you know, that's in Western North Carolina. And then if you look at like East Tennessee, I mean, they were blowing up bridges and Knoxville and like there's bridge plots where they would go out and like blow up bridges and things like disrupt the war effort. They tried to secede from Tennessee, like East Tennessee did. Um, and, you know, all, all this, so, uh, borders like pretty much were, were were not involved in that project and, and not really interested in that project to the extent that you know well cavaliers were bought in all the way, um, but I think that's an interesting fact to, to keep in mind. Yeah, and and what the author says is, and I and I, I wrote this quote down because it's so emblematic of the way I'm seeing this group. Yeah. So the borders all went to Appalachia and established their own little clans there. And nothing all at all went wrong except for the entire rest of American history. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Which That's is, right. I think I'll tell you what their impact is going to be like. So, um, uh, so what their accent would have been like a country western singer. I think so. Um, it, it it could be. Yeah, I, I can't quite remember the accent patterns for borders, but you can imagine what they sound like nowadays. And kind of extrapolate from there. Yeah, and they have family feuds, and that's where the Hatfields and McCoys came from. They were borders, right? That's right. Something about them. Um, most became Southern Baptist. That's right. Yeah, uh, they were anti-education, like the Cavaliers. Yeah, didn't quite believe them. Yeah, in fact, um, one of the things they would do is—I forgot what they call this—but uh, they would uh, the children would. Uh, I can't remember if they liked the teachers outside, uh, boarded up the school so they couldn't get in or couldn't get out. But one or the other, <laughs> the children were doing that stuff. That's funny. Yeah. And you mentioned Rough and Tumble, which was actually a sort of a game they played. It was wrestling, but it's considered good strategy to gouge out your opponent's eyes. Yeah, it's hilarious. So, so the, the, I think the hilarious thing about borders is so everyone in the world, when they think of a meme of America, they think of a border. Like that, that, that is the caricature of Americans. But the truth is, yeah, so borders have a much more minor role than people would realize. But it is an important facet of American modern folkways as well. It's kind of like this, um, you know, don't really take nothing from nobody. Equality is still fairly important. Um, and we are... Uh, yeah, we do kind of what we want to do here. <laughs> and of the four groups, they're the one that's that's most often identifies themselves as being Americans, not like Quakers or Scotch or Irish or English. They identify themselves as being Americans. Yeah. That's how Super much it speaks to them. And you can see why wow, they finally found a home. Right, finally a place. <laughs> yeah, they found a place. Makes sense to me. Uh, the shooting guns into the air is 100% a border tradition and where it started. <laughs> That's hilarious. And, and even if you look today, so uh, 
borderer. Uh, so the, the regionality has changed a little bit. And I think the divide has gotten much more urban rural, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, border values are mostly rural values now to a, a much larger extent, although they're, they've been Quakerized quite a bit. So important to keep that in mind. Um, and, and you think about like the, this big cities are primarily Puritan, if that makes sense. Yeah. Good thought. Um, the, their justice system was heavy on race-neutral lynching named after Western Virginia settler William Lynch. Exactly. See, so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, borders are, are quite, yeah, quite different from Cavaliers, right? So it, it's not, things aren't really racialized like uh, they are for the Cavaliers and hierarchy is not important, you know, like these people at all. In fact, they really kind of hate it, to be honest, um, because, you know, they've been looked at by the Cavaliers. And um, yeah, so very frontier justice kind of attitude towards things. And it sounds very much like the impulsive, quick, quick to draw, um, just, you know, just uh, wild. Yeah, wild. Andrew Jackson, yeah. Yeah, and so you mentioned a really famous border, Andrew Jackson, but Ulysses S. Grant, Teddy Roosevelt, George Patton, John Sherman. McCain, Patrick Henry, and Davy Crockett were all borders. Yeah, it comes to Sherman as well, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, and, and what was big to them was freedom of government interference, and they would lean to the, the libertarian Republican side. That's right, so if you think like, don't tread on me, Captain flag, like, yeah, core anti-England sentiment, I would say, is like border. It's not, it's not royalist cavaliers because they would mostly, you know, they, they really wanted their cousins in England to think they were cool. The borders did not care. Um, in fact, if you look at, yeah, yeah, so if you look at a lot of revolutionary conflict in, in North Carolina, it was like, you know, borders coming out and like running these British out. Yeah, so, um, so we've had a little bit of fun, laughed a little bit, and heard some really interesting things about these four groups. Uh, and it's to really get this point to reflect on what their contributions have been to today. And, I, and there were two conclusions that were in the book, and I'm gonna sort of read through them, we'll take but a minute, and then I want you to reflect on each conclusion and we'll go from there. This is sort of, we've done all this to arrive here. Perfect. Um, first conclusion is this. The North was settled by two groups with a combined emphasis on education, interested in moral reforms, racial tolerance, low teenage pregnancies, academic and mercantile history. They were the historical Whigs and Republicans who preceded the Democratic Party, and that's the Quakers and the Puritans. Yep. You want to tell us about that, what you think about that? Yeah, so I think you can, you can see this like play out and even in just pure outcomes um, between different regions in the United States. Um, so, you know, the North, much more industrialized. And, and so these, these fault lines in America uh, between these kind of four groups coalesced eventually in the Civil War for all kinds of different reasons. We can talk about that at a later date. Um, but it's all, it kind of explains how like, American values are like this really weird combination of, you know, like these libertarian values, like, um, and, and these, uh, and, and these kind of four groups of American politics and how they kind of play out in these weird ways, right? Like, like why is, uh, 
you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, why is, why is his beliefs so powerful um, versus like, you know, establishment Democrats versus you know, establishment Republicans that are, you know, fairly pro hierarchy, even though much less so than they would have been before with these cavalier values versus like um, this weird border politics, which we, we don't see super often, um, you know, uh, which has kind of come back in, in Trump to a certain extent, which is much more, um, I, people might get mad at me for this, but I think it's, it is a true analysis that it's much more egalitarian than, um, than uh, traditional Republican um, politicians, if that makes sense. So there's much more of an, an emphasis on that and much more forward or uh, kind of view of the world, if that makes sense. Um, even even in the way like Trump like talks and like you know like he's unfiltered like it's it's very like anti what we usually see uh, because border presidents are weird you know we've only had a couple of them um, and and they they tend to uh, kind of tend to act like that and so half this message is the North was settled by the Puritans and Quakers who became today's Democrats that's right. And the other half of the message is the South was settled by two groups with a combined interest in poor education, gun culture, a culture of violence, xenophobia, high premarital pregnancy, militarism, patriotism, and the accent similar to country Western accent, uh, maybe, maybe not. And, um, and support for the Democratic Republicans, which became today's modern Republican Party. That's right, that's right. And so, explain it explains like the, the combination of values and like why the two parties have these like weird combination of values and even like Americans have like this really weird combination of values and what makes America a unique place. And it, it's also encouraging in the sense that, you know, we have been able to get along fairly well, I mean, other than this massive war in the 1860s, um, you know, in resolving these conflicts, we have been able to create this kind of pluralistic society with a bunch of like, really disparate values like i mean you couldn't think of you know between quakers and cavaliers like this is huge you know huge gap but we still managed to kind of make things work fairly well so uh, having reflected on this um first i found that very disturbing because one of the things the points that's made is this can go beyond culture and be genetic yes I mean, th there could definitely be genetic components to, uh, you know, how people view the world. You know, I, I tend to think cultural ways. So I'm, I've been in the middle of a book called The Secrets of Our Success. It's quite good. It's all about uh, cultural learning and, and um, how things develop, depending on, you know, what, what your culture is and, and how those things interplay. The, you know, the interplay between genes and culture, it's super fascinating. So one of the big things that to keep, I think we should keep in mind is, um, People learn, um, so humans are very poor at having new thoughts. We're not very good at it. Essentially how we learn, we look at high status people in whatever peer group we're in and we copy that behavior. Um, so we look at the successful high status people in whatever small social group we're in and we copy that behavior. Um, and so I think that's how these things get passed down more than people would even realize. Um, so people don't like have emergent ideas about how to live. They essentially look to the highest status person around them, they copy that behavior, and then that's kind of what gets transmitted. That makes so sense. Could, it's sort of, the, it could be this sort of combination like of, of, of nature and nurture. It could be that it is somewhat genetic because 
faith points out you're if you develop a habit it can become genetic even in maybe maybe in even a lifetime it could be and genes can change that fast so whether it's something you you learn from your peers or something you got from people that are older than your peers which i guess in a sense is your peers too yeah it's sort of the same impact that's right that's fair and yeah, I, yeah. And then the other thing, having I like some of these uh, attributes of these groups that I, I learned, I went, wow, how are we going to overcome that? And then I got to thinking, you know, it's all these things mixed up that have made us what we are, right? Like there's periods where you better be a border, you better be a general, you better be a military person, where you better be ultra patriotic. Yeah. That's how you're going to survive. And then there's going to be periods when you're going to need to be like, very productive and uh, sort of serious and um, Puritan. Yeah. Like yeah drinking and then, and get things done. Yeah. And then many of the modern ideas we have about philosophical things came from the Quakers. And so that's provided a framework. So there's attributes everywhere that are important. And there's some things we need to try to suppress some. That's true. That's always true. That's right. Yeah. And I think it, to a certain extent, it explains America so much and like these weird values we have. And also why we've been so successful, like this weird combination has been like incredibly successful in, in creating like this, you know, the richest country in the world per capita. And um, it was just super interesting. I mean, I was just looking at, it. I think, you know, the poorest state in the, in the union is richer than, um, you know, per capita in like Sweden. You know, I don't think people realize this, like, yeah, I think like Mississippi, like the average person is, is like more wealthy than the average person in Sweden. And, you know, they get they have these trade-offs, right? There's trade-offs between, you know, redistribution and like pure economic output. Um, and maybe those people look better. I'm not making some value judgment on that, but we are much richer in all these respects. And, and the, it's the tensions, those tensions between, friend, if we want to go to political a little bit, I'm not going political much, but... I will say this, it is the tension between the Democratic and Republican Party that sort of, we sort of wobble one to one side and we kind of wobble over the other side. And then, and we're always sort of moving around what the center seems to be. That's right. And, and, that, and that has been sort of an upward trend, like the stock market. It moves to the upper right. That's right. And that's how you get this. I, I think the important thing is this, that's how you get this weird average. So like, you know, I'll be on seat it helps you understand like how it's really weird policies like uh, cause it's weird. Like you, you would not, you, you would not like put these together like rationally and think like, okay, this is the piece I would grab from here and here and here. Like, no, it, it makes much more sense in, in context. Okay. Uh, so rich conclusion, final thoughts. Final thoughts. Yeah. You know, I, I would encourage everyone to just kind of think about, you know, what are your values and how they line up with these, uh, with the four folk ways. And there are a couple other folk ways we didn't cover that are smaller, mainly because uh, just the pure number of people is not as big. So, um, and we, we can talk about this later. Amen. But um, I, I think, you know, where do your, your values lie on the spectrum and, you know, how are they informed in, in this way? by the folk ways and, you know, even like look at your family history and see how it's, it's come down and, and, and you might find some surprising, surprising ideas. Good. Well, Will, thanks for the narrative and we'll see you next time on narratives. Thanks.
Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.